0: Welcome to Money Making Conversation. I am your host, Rashawn McDonald. It is time to stop reading other people's success stories. I got successful people who come over here. I want you to hear their stories, but I don't want you to be enamored by their stories. I want you to work your own stories because you can be motivated by their success because their stories can offer you direction and help you reach your goals through your planning now. Hear what I'm saying? Your planning and your committed effort. My interviews are really is about... If you want to hear about successful stories, go to people who are successful. They are are celebrities, they're CEOs, they're entrepreneurs. And my next person, she is what I call an industry decision maker. My next guest is uh, Dr. Jennifer Ashton. Dr. Ashton is a double board certified physician as an OBGYN and obesity medicine and a nutritionist with a master's degree in nutrition. Well, she'd hate the fact that I actually have uh, Krispy Kreme on my app. I have Krispy Kreme donut. (laughs) She is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent. Dr. Jennifer Aston has been a trusted voice providing vital help and medical information as GMA3, What You Need to Know, and constant coverage on ABC's news on the COVID-19 pandemic. She released her latest book, The New Normal, A Roadmap to Resilience in the Pandemic Era, a must-read guide, and I must say it is a must-read guide to dealing with the continued challenges of the pandemic. Tell you what folks is not going anywhere, and we discuss, she discusses that in the book. She's one of the most trusted health personalities on TV today. She's an active medical practice, is a leading voice in her new book, The New Normal, out now and will teach us how to think like a doctor, which I never ever thought about that whole principle to help us stay informed, make decisions about your health, and better na- navigate the new normal. Please welcome to the Money Making Conversation, Dr. Jennifer Aston. How are you doing?
1: Sir, thank you for that very kind intro, and I'm so glad to be able to talk with you.
0: Well, you know, the, the, I, I think that uh, you have been probably, uh, first of all, I feel fortunate to have you on this show. You know, it was either you or Dr. Fauci. You you, you were my people, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you, know, you know, because of the fact that, okay, let's just go back when it all happened, because that's what this book is about, the new normal, okay, when I thought it was just going to be two months. I can tell you this dr. Ashton when I first went out I, I, I live in Houston and I live in Atlanta Georgia my headquarters is in Atlanta Georgia and I was in Houston and I drove down surprised my family because you know th- nobody wanted to fly so I just drove I just up woke up and drove to Houston from Atlanta and I went inside my first home Depot I had a mask I had uh, rubber gloves I had my uh, p- what little parole I had because before it got cleared off the shelf I just happened to have have some poreal. And when I got back to my truck, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know do I take my gloves off, do I do I do I put the lotion on my hands? It was that whole I guess, uncertainty, that's unsafe zone. Now I'm a lot more comfortable not saying that I'm not wearing a mask. I wear a mask. I understand understand and respect social distancing now. But that's something that you have the educators on and you had to live through the process of dealing with a political system at the time that was in denial about COVID-19. Talk to us about that.
1: Well, I think it was more than denial. I mean, first of all, I you've heard me say in my book, you've heard me say on national television, I stay in my lane. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm a doctor. I speak about medicine, health, wellness, public Mm -hmm. health, Mm -hmm. science. That's it. Thank goodness. I am not a politician. I don't know anything about finances like you do. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I I don't know about weather, entertainment. Mm -hmm. Don't ask me the latest show, Mm -hmm. except for Bridgerton. I haven't watched any TV in the last year. (laughs) Um, but when this all started, the issue I think was that the masks was not communicated well, mm-hmm. and so that was one of those really seminal moments in the pandemic where we lost a lot of trust, um, and by we, I mean everyone in science and medicine. Mm-hmm. and the reason for that, let me just explain. Mm-hmm is that we did not know before April of last year that so many people could be infected with COVID Mm -hmm. and show no symptoms at all and spread the virus. We also didn't know that it would shut down the entire world because we had never seen that in anyone's lifetime, right? right? 1918, the last influenza pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so prior to April in medicine, the only time we put a mask on someone was a sick person in the hospital to protect others. Right. So even though a lot of people would say, well, isn't it common sense to put a mask on? Yes and no. But in science and medicine, we go by data, not just, well, something looks like it makes sense. And also remember that those types of supplies were in a very, very high demand. Right. So... We couldn't say to the entire country, 330 million people, yeah, everyone put a mask on um, because A, we didn't have the science to support that. B, we didn't know that so many people could be infected with COVID and not show symptoms. And C, we had a PPE shortage. So until we learned what we learned in the first three months, the recommendation was no, this is not necessary. I know it makes people feel better, but there's no science to support this. And... I have, um, you know, I go through in the book, I have a lot of these Ashtonisms, right. as I like mm-hmm. to call them, mm-hmm. which are these medical sayings that I've said in the last 16 years of being a doctor. And and one of them is that I really believe you can communicate any level of complex medical or scientific information to anyone, including a child, right. if the messenger is the right person or, you know, uses the right communication skills. And to be honest, the right communication skills were not used early on in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I also say in the book, we have, I'm a big believer in that saying, be careful when you point a finger because three are usually pointing back at you. (laughs) And so I don't, I'm not one that says, well, it was this person's fault or that fault or whatever. We've got more than enough to handle right now by staying in the present and looking in the future.
0: Well, here's the thing. Uh, I'm, I'm talking to Dr. Jennifer Aston, uh, the new normal. That's the name of her book. Uh, uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna pull out some things that really uh, stood out to me. The importance of laughter and love. Talk to me about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, anyone who's been through a crisis or a trauma in their life knows that, um, you know, laughter can be more than just an icebreaker. Right. Mm -hmm. It can be therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyone who's been to a wake, a funeral, um, stood vigil in a hospital while someone is in the operating room knows that, you know, sometimes that's a really powerful way to kind of release a lot of tension and stress And it can be very healing. Um, So I think if we can't laugh, usually, you know, I say at ourselves, and for me, that's an endless supply of material, let's just put it that way,
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um,
1: you know, then then we're really in trouble. And in terms of love, I think that, you know, this is an area that does cross, you know, straddle lanes between medicine and public health and, and the rest of our society is that I really do believe that if you act with love as your primary motivation, you will never go wrong.
0: Well, the thing about it is that you are a real doctor. I to emphasize that because of the <laughs> fact that the reason I say that, because you have to deal with certain levels of anxiety here. You have to deal with real patients. OK, You're OBGYN. Uh, and then you're a nutritionist. And then also you have to come on TV because suddenly your life was flipped from just being periodically on TV to on TV all the time, which in turn meant that you became an authority on something that you were developing information as you went along and people will hold you accountable for if you said something and you, and, you, and you again, you're still in the learning process, which in turn put stress on you. How did that stress create anxiety in your life? You talk about it in certain instances in your book. Um, in my situation, it, I, I gained weight. You know, I, my whole life uh, had suddenly become at the house. I picked up five pounds. I realized mm-hmm. I was eating three meals a day. So that was the stress mm-hmm. that was that was brought into my life. Your mm-hmm. stress was because your face was now recognizable. And America's authority on I'm going use the word correctly. You are an authority on COVID-19 and that was not fair. Correct.
1: Well, let me, first of all, it, it's my job. So, and I, and I really feel incredibly blessed to have mm-hmm. the responsibility that I have, mm-hmm. you know, in medicine, um, we take this Hippocratic oath and that is primarily to be a teacher Of what we know, whether it's teaching our patients or teaching other student doctors. But I would also, if I could revise the Hippocratic Oath today, I would add student to it. And Mm -hmm. that's what I've been doing for over a year. And people Mm -hmm. say, well, you're not a specialist in infectious disease. Absolutely correct. But a lot of people don't know that in medical school, we have to learn every specialty. We just don't learn one body part and take it four years and then that's it. Um, you know, there's a human being connected to that body part. So we have to learn every specialty. And then in covering this pandemic, um, I was literally speaking to Tony Fauci by personal cell phone, either every week or every other week at nine o'clock at night at seven o'clock in the morning. And you're right, there was a massive responsibility that came, um, on my shoulders, to not only understand this Mm -hmm. rapidly evolving and changing information, but to communicate it in the right way. And as you were asking your question, I couldn't help but think, you know, when you said I I am an actual real doctor and not just playing one on TV, Mm -hmm. I I do speak to real patients Mm -hmm. who I'm responsible for their lives. And when they get scared and they get anxious, it doesn't matter that we're one-on-one. I have to answer their questions and put them at ease, both in their mind and in their spirit. And there's absolutely no difference between doing that and what I do on national television. So it's like when we have uh, people, leaders of faith, on GMA3 and every single time we say, gosh, that person is a really good speaker. And then I laugh and I say to myself, of course, they're a good speaker. That's what they do for a living. <laughs> they speak to their congregation every week. Right. So, um, you know, I think that the recognizing that people were scared and anxious and felt this degree of uncertainty was something that I realized literally from the first minute. And I realized it because I was feeling the same thing.
0: You know, the interesting thing about your book, when I first read it, and of course it hit home with me because it talked about you know, COVID-19 and how it affects um, you know, people of color, African-American, black men, especially. You know, It affects men differently than it affects women. In fact, it impacts men a lot more. Picked that up from your book, Dr. Ashton. Thank you very much. Didn't know that. So I'm just letting everybody know a very informative book. But the thing about it is that when we hear the story about Jason, the bus driver, uh, who made national news. I remember I saw his video when he was complaining about the, the, the person who was coughing on the bus and then weeks later he died. But it was not only tied to COVID, but we started to realize COVID affected people for different ways. And then in your book, you started you start talking about how you can create change. And one of the great changes is weight loss.
1: Right. So I want to unpack two really important things that you say there, Rashawn. Number one, race. Okay. Um, the effects, the disproportionate effects on people of color, black and brown populations for this virus uh, was should have been seen and expected. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's my little doggy here at home. (laughs) Um, And so it was not a surprise that we were seeing more obesity, more high blood pressure, um, more heart disease, coexisting medical conditions, preexisting medical conditions in people of color. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's not a surprise when you saw more disproportionate rate of death amongst black and brown people with this Mm -hmm. pandemic. Also their jobs, which put them at risk, their access to testing and medical care, put them at risk. And right now, I think we're in a very interesting but precarious position in medicine, because on the one hand, there are people who think that you should not identify someone at all by their race or ethnicity in Mm -hmm. medicine. And everyone should just, you know, be, you should be blinded to that and treat everyone the same. I fundamentally disagree with that because what that does is it throws out all of the knowledge that we have about what constitutes you at being at a higher risk than a 30-year-old Asian woman, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And if we can't identify risk factors, then we can't take aggressive preventative steps to protect you. So I do think, and I talk about Jason's story in the book about how when he died of COVID, we didn't even know being male puts you at risk at right. greater risk. Being mm-hmm. black puts you at greater risk. Being mm-hmm. obese puts you at greater risk. Having diabetes puts you at greater risk. Now we do. So as individuals and as doctors, we can take steps to lower that risk. You can never make it zero, right? I can't I can't make you not male. <laughs> right. I can't make you not black. I can't make someone Um, who is 75, not 75. Mm -hmm. But we can take steps to reduce the conditions of overweight and obesity. So I go through those dietary steps. Some of them are easy. Believe me, this is not a major overhaul. These are baby steps. Mm -hmm. Um, But who do you know someone who's not concerned about their weight because I don't. Literally everyone is.
0: You know, interesting thing about it is that you're absolutely right. Like you say, in your book, you say what you can't change is your age. But everything else you can have an impact on. When you do discuss diet, diabetes, you talk about low sugar, low sugar nutrition, more exercise, sustained weight loss. But the big thing is the weight loss, you know, and I'm, I'm African-American and I know my sisters. I know my family. I know the history of African-Americans. Our diets uh, tend to run obese, oh, high blood pressure, cholesterol levels tend to run high diabetes. And suddenly this pandemic comes into our lives. And I remember I was watching the news and it was based in Atlanta. It was an eight out of ten. Um, patients checked into hospital for yep. African-American. I was actually stunned. Couldn't believe it. But from a media standpoint, do you think that was not recognized early on? or All the world was just confused as to what was going on. And especially just seeing African-Americans rolling into a hospital, blaming it on, um, you know, large households, uh, mass transit services, uh, things like that.
1: I think there was a lot of blame. It goes back to what I said about pointing the finger,
2: right? right? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, I, in my opinion, I have looked at this pandemic and our country like it's one big patient. right? And so when a, someone, for example, who's been a lifelong smoker comes into the hospital with lung cancer, we don't blame the person for smoking cigarettes for 30 years, we treat their lung cancer. And so I think that, you know, Pointing out the reasons why is important so you can try to fix them. Mm -hmm. But if it's done with the intention of shifting responsibility, then I think that's a problem. And, um, you know, I'll share with you something that I hope will inspire your viewers Mm -hmm. um, like it has inspired me and my family. But in the last week, Mm -hmm. I've been yet on quarantine again Sean again, mm-hmm. even though I've had both doses of the vaccine,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, I was exposed to someone who has COVID at work. Mm-hmm. And I had to quarantine. And I decided that I wanted to do my own dietary experiment during this period of quarantine. And I had watched the movie Game Changers, which I don't know if you've seen it. But if you haven't, I recommend it. Mm-hmm. And it's about all of these elite athletes right. and normal people mm-hmm. who change their diet mm-hmm. and become vegan. Now, right. I will tell you, I was the about as far from a vegan as it is possible to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, I ate chicken every single day, eggs <laughs> every single day, pork, I loved pork. I was trying to cut down on red meat, but I was, I mean, every meal I was eating had animal protein in it. This is just 10 days ago, by the way, you're the first person I'm discussing this. with, right. like. mm-hmm. And I said, "Let me get my kids who are in college, and mm-hmm. you know, they're around obviously, because they're not in school. And I said, "Let's try this experiment. Let's do it together." And I've got all these kind of frozen fake meat things and looked up some recipes and whatever. <laughs> and I'm 10 days in. I have not had an egg, I've not had chicken, I've not had dairy and I've not had pork, and I'm still alive.
2: Right, <laughs> And right, actually, right. I feel
1: pretty good. Right. Now, I'm not suggesting that you have to go to that extreme. But my point with that, and I go through this in the book, and in my other books also, but specifically in The New Normal, mm-hmm. is that you can, tr- this is one of those silver lining blessings, I believe, in this pandemic, is we're all at home a lot
2: mm-hmm.
1: more, and you know, we're all concerned with our health. So now is the time to try one of these experiments, because you literally have nothing to lose other than a couple of pounds. And that is a major, major way that anyone can improve their health, lower their cholesterol, lose a couple of pounds, and protect the environment, believe it or not. Um, Even though that wasn't my primary motivation, the more I learn about it, the more it's getting up there. But listen, if I can do it,
0: anyone can do it i'm I'm gonna be honest with you i i i started my own little home garden I, I, had a look, I had three tomato pots. I I uh, harvested uh, over a hundred tomatoes. I had my uh, poblamo peppers, I had my jalapeno peppers, cilantro. Uh, and so now I bought a new building in Atlanta. And so I have a certain area because it's, it's a private lot that I'm on, one acre private lot. I've set aside and I told my staff, that's going to be our garden where I'm going to have potatoes out there. I'm going to have lettuce, uh, uh, cabbages, excuse me. And it's about eight different vegetables because it, I, I, I 100% agree with you. This is the time when you want to change your habits, change your life, your life. I am going all out. And I will tell you this, a homegrown tomato is a lot sweeter than a store-bought tomato. So when you buy stuff from an organic, it's not chemically induced. So right. I am 100% on your page. And I read that in your book, I went, you know, because I read that about the pandemic. It was physical. I did the pandemic physical. I did that in December. Good. And so so I was like going through your book on check check. Okay, doctor, check, check. And then also I got to the point where you said the pros and cons of telemedicine. Because you are a real doctor, talk to us, talk to us about the whole pros and cons of telemedicine.
1: Well, the first thing I would say to your to your viewers is whether it's telemedicine or mm-hmm. texting or just a, a local clinic that you like, make sure you have a connection, a relationship, ideally, with some kind of healthcare provider, mm-hmm. um, that's another one of the wake up calls of this pandemic. People get sick, they don't know who to call, um, you know. And I and I do believe that telemedicine, as I talk about in the in the book, is a silver lining of this pandemic because there's a lot that you can accomplish with a telemedicine um, visit with a provider that you don't have to go long distance, wait in a waiting room, et cetera, et cetera. There's a tremendous amount that can be done. Via telemedicine. Um, in the past, people were kind of intimidated by it, but we had no choice in this pandemic. Right. Um, you know, I saw my patients that way for three months when we were on lockdown in New York City. So, um, look, you can't do an EKG, you can't draw blood via telemedicine yet, right. but you can accomplish a lot. And I think that the key and why I wanted to write the book and really explain to people how to think like a doctor mm-hmm. is so that they could understand. When do I need to go to the emergency room? When do I need to go to urgent care? When do I need to call my own doctor, you know, if you have one? Um, how to assess these things. Is it really bad? Is it, you know, emergency room level? And you don't have to be a doctor to learn to think like one. And that can help alleviate a lot of the anxiety and the uncertainty, not only for us, but for our families.
0: Yeah, you talk about you have anxiety moment in the book where you thought you may have... Have COVID because your blood pressure changed. You call for your children; they call the emergency, and then you refuse to go. Because then you attend the discussion about ER when you should go to the hospital. That's the whole process of what you were talking about in the book. To talk about that moment because I think we all. Because I would let me tell you this, Doctor Aston. I remember when it, when COVID when we was being quarantined. If I got a cough, I really was a high level paranoid about. What was happening to me, We know, you know, because I didn't know nobody was giving me information. So I didn't know. If, and I'm a guy who knows my body. I really do. And I, I love what you talk about, knowing your body, exercise, yep. talk to yourself and walk through the whole process, because that's what this book breaks down. It's when you said right. thinking like a doctor and. Right. When you had that moment, I could, I could, I I was so uh, sympathetic in your whole process because of the fact that, one, you're dealing with it all the time. You said, Rashawn, in your book, um, acting like you're talking to me, you said, made a breeding ground <laughs> for pandemic is cruise ships, prisons, nursing homes and households. Here you are right. thinking you have COVID-19. Walk us through that process.
1: So. You know, when I, well, first of all, my brother, who's also a doctor in mm-hmm. the Bronx, um, mm-hmm. up here in New York, had COVID mm-hmm. re- at, in March. Mm-hmm. Um, he got exposed taking care of patients in the emergency room. And soon after that, I had an episode that one night that I talk about in the book, that turned out to be an allergic reaction. But my blood pressure dropped and my heart rate went pretty high and I, I almost fainted. I almost okay. lost consciousness. And I was just home with um, my two ch- children who were in college and my daughter's boyfriend, also a college student. Mm-hmm. And I'm the only parent my kids have. So there's a lot of pressure that's in the back of my mind always, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the only reason most parents I think would agree with this, that I really care about my health is because of my kids, mm-hmm. right? Because if I die, I'm dead. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't want to leave my kids without a parent. Mm-hmm. So um I was on the phone with my boyfriend at the time, who's also a doctor, mm-hmm. and he said, You don't sound good, you should call 911. Mm-hmm. And I have never called 911 in my life. Right. So right there it tells you kind of what level I was at. And the paramedics came into my apartment and they checked my blood pressure and I started to feel better. My vital signs were normal. And they said, I told them I was a doctor and they said, do you want to go to the emergency room? And I said, absolutely not.
2: Right. <laughs> like,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because... New York City was on lockdown at this point. Right. I mm-hmm. I did not want to be exposed to COVID. Mm-hmm. And I knew based on my vital signs that I was okay, that it was likely just a, a, a reaction to some Benadryl that was probably expired that I took.
2: Right.
1: But the point is that I explain in the book is that I have that medical knowledge, but the average reader doesn't. So right. when you get scared or when you have a symptom, how should you decide where to take it? and i go through a lot of those ashtonisms like you know really bad things don't get better on their own they get worse right <laughs> so if you're getting worse and not better you should get it checked out if you would have gone to the emergency room for this issue in 2019 then you should probably go now cuz now hospitals are much safer
2: well, um, you know, you get, and if
1: you're having chest pain right. or the worst headache of your life, something that could literally kill you, mm-hmm. you should 100 percent call 911 and get yourself to an emergency. Room. We talked about. So the pro- I kind of talk people through that. Right.
0: Right. You, you have, absolutely. You do a, you do a very fantastic job. I talked about the pros and cons of, of telemedicine. Where you are an official doctor, you are <laughs> double board certified nutritionist. Nutritionist. Where should we not get I, I, this is my favorite chapter of the book Where not to get your medical news That um, So you know I was oh. deep in the book So you know Dr. Aston, I was deep in the book when I got to that part And I just wanted to talk about that Before we leave and I want to also thank you for taking the time to be on the show To bring my viewers a very heartwarming book And also informative book But if, before you go, if you can talk you. about Where not to get yeah. your medical news Well,
1: don't get it from your next door neighbor Unless
0: they're a doctor
1: <laughs> Don't get it from your friend unless they're a doctor Don't get it from any um like non-credentialed social media sites. Right. Um, You know, it should be CDC or someone with an MD after their name that has the position like I do where, you know, millions and millions of people are listening. So I have to make sure every single word I say is accurate and correct to the best of our knowledge based on scientific data. I mean, it is unbelievable how many times I speak to real people who say, well, I heard that dot, dot, dot. And I, and I say, this is not a game of telephone. You guys, like, what do you mean? You heard it. Mm -hmm. This isn't a gossip story. This is your health. Mm -hmm. So I, I do go through that in the book and, um, you know, listen, we learn every day. We don't know everything in medicine and science. And any doctor who says that they do either hasn't been a doctor for very long or is not one you should listen to.
0: Well, you're a doctor I listen to all the time. <laughs> you know, I have two doctors I love in pandemic as Dr. Aston is one and Dr. Fauci is the other. And thank you for this new book, The New Normal. I, uh, I have a fan club of 90,000. Fans, I'm going to put it in the book. I have a, about 1.6 million uh, social media followers. I'm going to support it that way. But more importantly, I just wanted to share your world, so with my world, and also the Shana, book.
1: thank you. Yeah, really? And, and listen, please, let's stay in touch. I, I usually only use Instagram. My uh, handle is at drjashton, and okay. I would love to hear from your followers and your viewers. Absolutely. And um, I, I don't look at... Twitter or Facebook that much because I feel like people are mean mm. and I feel like we need a, a lot more nice in the world today. But um, I really appreciate you having me on. And next time I come to Atlanta or Houston, I want one of those backyard tomatoes.
0: Thank you. Appreciate you. Stay strong <laughs> and stay safe. More importantly, see you on TV. Bye bye.
1: We will be right back with more money making conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald.
0: Hi, I'm Rashawn McDonald, the host of Money Making Conversation. The Cafe Mocha Swag Award is a celebration of black men who are making a difference in our community by empowering others to reach their life goals. From civic leaders, businessmen, activists, celebrities and everyday dads, the Cafe Mocha Swag Award winner this week is Reginald Hudlin. He is the director of House Party, Boomerang, producer of Django Unchained, the 88 Oscars broadcast. The NAACP Image Award, Showtime at the Apollo, the Black Panther comic book, and The Black Godfather. I'm really grateful that the movie is having the impact that it is. What I'm so grateful for is the response of the public. I've got people who said, Mm -hmm. I get something different out of it every time. Some people hit me and go, you know what, I need to be a little more generous than I'm being with people who are coming up behind me. It's transforming people. The Cafe Mocha Swag Award represents men who have strength, whose wisdom is assertive, and who is genuine in their spirit.
1: Welcome back to Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald.
0: My next guest is Michael Sholson, the Sholson Collective. That's what we're going to talk about today is the restaurant empire that's built in his vision and has made him one of Philadelphia's most successful hospitality professionals. We also discussed COVID-19. When you're in the restaurant business, you have to bring up that whole thing. But most importantly, we want going to talk about how he's made these business adjustments because you hear about it on the news. You hear about how the, you know, uh, social distancing, limiting, sometimes even shutting down service in the restaurant business has been overtly affected by COVID-19. But more importantly, during this period of COVID-19, where everybody in the world, including me, was gaining weight, Michael decided it was time to lose 35 pounds. So we're going to learn about that. And he did it in less than three months. So please welcome to Money Making Conversations, my good friend, Michael Shultzen. How you doing, Michael?
3: Good, good. Thanks for having me on. How are
0: you doing? Well, you know, uh, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big restaurant guy. I, really, let me get personal a little bit about COVID nineteen and uh, my wife. I have a wife and I have a, a lovely daughter who's wrapping up her, co- her college years. And you know, at least once or twice a week, we will always go to one of our favorite restaurants. And COVID hit, and uh, it just. Uh, Like the world, it flipped us all and gave us a new approach to the whole business acumen. In fact, my wife still will not go to an outdoor restaurant and she still, you know, we can do takeaway, takeouts and curbside, but she will not go in a restaurant. And with that, I just want to open up the whole journey of being shut down. If you can share with us the shock of how COVID-19 and how you kind of built your way out of it and started re, I guess, I guess. Reassessing a new way of doing business moving forward with your and Collective Empire.
3: Yeah, so so when we first heard about it, we, the thought process was like, okay, we're going to have two, three weeks of something. We'll be shut down, um, and then we'll go from there and see mm-hmm. how it goes. And um, unfortunately, um, three weeks has turned into to over a year now. Right. Um, so we're. we're every day is kind of a new lesson and what we're going to do. And, and we're, we're big into setting goals for ourselves here as a company. Um, the first goal was to make sure to just take care of everyone, to be safe and set up systems where mm-hmm. people felt comfortable, whether it was coming to work, um, whether they didn't have food and they needed food, whatever our resources were is to take care of the employees. And that was kind of the beginning. And as we kind of progressed through the process, it was Okay. Um, we kind of see this as it's not going to be a money making thing. Unfortunately, it's about survival and getting to the other side. And we kind of put in some goals for ourselves of what does it look like for us when we get to the other side? And, uh, the the biggest goal that we put in there was to have the best people that we could possibly have working for us. And that has kind of been our, our whole theme during this. We've hired some new people. We've hired some better people. Um, the good thing about this, unfortunately is, unemployment you think about what the unemployment rate was going into this right and now what it is on the other side of it and if we could hire good people to come out of this we're going to be a better company at the end than when we were when we started and that's kind of what our goal has been through this.
0: it really is because you know there are lots of and i'm not trying to get uh, any financials or anything like that it's just talking yeah. about the attitude and the approach to this because when i invite people to money making conversation i just want other people to know that other people, whether they're successful or they're small individual entrepreneurs, they were impacted by COVID-19 and we all have different stories and how we were impacted also affects how we can be successful. Now, from a personal standpoint, can you walk us through those steps, how you and your and your immediate family was dealing with COVID-19 before you yeah, re- go back yeah. to the business first, side?
3: first, it was, I mean, our immediate family, when we were in knee deep in this, it was 1,500 employees. Mm-hmm. Um And now we're down to about we're back up to about 500 now. And our Mm -hmm. goal is to get to 1500 again. Right. Um, So it was to protect everybody and make everyone feel safe. And at the beginning of this, we were um, opening up a couple of the restaurants and giving away food to the staff for free. So this way they could take it home and give it to their families and Mm -hmm. feed their families. So that was the first step of trying to make sure everyone has a place to go and place to eat. Um, And then as we got through this, it was with our family. It was we have two boys, uh, 14 years old and 10 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was making sure that they felt comfortable and and we were being safe and wearing your mask and understanding the importance of this and getting out to the other side and not becoming computer zombies and and dealing with electronics every day. And it was entertaining them and and keeping busy and doing our thing together as a family. And uh, we made a lot of bread. We made a lot of pizza it was kind of things that would take us a long time. I mean, I think bread was that thing that's like bread could be a three day process between the starter, Mm -hmm. letting it rest and letting it rise and breaking it down and baking it. Uh, So it kept us busy. But, but after a while we said like, what are we doing here? Are we just going to get into this rut of figuring it out or are we going to have a purpose? And I'm definitely a person about purpose. Mm -hmm. Usually it's let's open a restaurant. This is our goal. Uh, Let's get it going. We're going to open the next one. So, you can't unfortunately do that during this time. So the purpose shifted to the family it shifted to myself of I'm going to eat better. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to take care of myself. Um, and we're going to work together as a family to make sure that we're playing some board games, doing puzzles and all that stuff to entertain ourselves and not get caught up in. Uh, depression
0: and electronics. I, I would tell you this, Michael. Um, you know, when it, when, like you, and like all of America, when COVID 19 hit, and it's not going anywhere, it's going to change the way we we ha- handle our hygiene publicly and privately moving forward. I know I would always approach things differently. I don't think I, I would hug strangers like I used to or yeah. uh, come close to people that I don't know, even people I do know. I'll be cautious in my behavior. But as a leader, you know we all look for guidance we all and you're a leader you're a leader of a successful collective that's based out of a restaurant collective that's based out of philadelphia and we you're one of those uh one of those uh proud childs you know that's out there a success story i should say how did that really affect you emotionally when you say it, it did you get into uh oh why me why now or are you just No, look i'm never that guy
3: i mean i'm not I'm not a pity guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody wants to, to be that pity guy. Nobody wants to be around that pity guy. Nobody pity doesn't get you success. Right. Uh, fighting through it. And I think one of the, b- the greatest quotes, I forgot who it was, um, said the best thing that you could do during adversity is the right thing. Mm-hmm. The second best thing that you could do is the wrong thing. And the worst thing that you could do is nothing. And, and I think that was kind of our message to, to live by of, Let's try and do the right thing. If it's the wrong thing, then we'll readjust and do something else. But we're not going to sit around, do nothing and have a pity party and just sit here and go, life stinks. Um, We're all dealing with it. It was the reality of the situation. COVID is terrible. It's not fun. Nobody's having fun. Mm -hmm. It's a nightmare. But Mm -hmm. how do you adjust your life to survive? Not just to survive, but you kind of have to try and thrive through it and uh, my wife and I, we like to travel a lot and we like to ski and do things with the kids and be outside and take trips and all that stuff. And <laughs> what have we done? Like, I'm not a camping guy, but we started to go to Airbnbs and go camping upstate New York. And we stayed in a yurt for the first time in my life, which I never <laughs> thought I would do. We stayed on a farm, which I never thought I would do. Uh-huh. But- To do these things and just figure out how to live your life. I mean, we just drove to Vermont. The longest car ride I ever did in my life was three hours. Right. We just drove eight hours with two kids in the back. I got a hitch on the back of my car, (laughs) which I never thought I would do. I mean, my friends are laughing at me, but you know what? You have to adjust and like get through this, not just survive and have a pity party.
0: And I I laugh because you know I was an old school road comic when I was out when I left IBM to pursue uh, left IBM to be a stand up comedian. Yeah. And I was on the road. So I know about those uh eight, ten hour joints and then but I didn't have two kids in the back, okay?
2: Yeah.
0: And uh, that's a different story. The restaurant the the restaurant the restroom stops, you know, when you can go for four or five hours, they wanna stop. They wanna complain.
3: Yeah. And uh But well, I think that's what it's about. It's about it's about persevering and getting to the other side and um, have goals. I mean, what am I going to sit here and yell at the gut? Go- I mean, you can't, we mm-hmm. can't sit here. Everyone wants to yell at the cities or the States or, or the federal government. Of, right. You're not doing enough. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to suggest that I disagree or agree. Mm-hmm. But what I am going to tell you is the only person who could control what you do is you, you. And, and that's correct. kind of the goal is to get control. What you could do, do the best of your ability. and, don't sit there at the end of the day going, I wish I would have.
0: Right. Really. I'm talking to Michael Schultz and, uh um, uh, the Showson collected with restaurant chain, which is based out. It's a chain because he has a lot. Of, it's not like a Burger King because he had a lot of different restaurants. Let's talk about the the whole creative process of doing so many different styles and not being a chain. Well, you know, we can go in one location and you get the same thing. Why the versatility? Why the different approaches to these different restaurants?
3: You know, you know some people call me an idiot for doing it. These, these <laughs> I don't. I don't have it figured out. Um, it's like you, you figure out the business model. You're like put it in a box mm-hmm. and then you do it again mm-hmm. and again and mm-hmm. again and again. And it's just like right across level field and, and they nail it. Um, us creative people and people who have passion about what we do in terms of uh, creating something that's unique and different. That's why we do this. We, we just have this passion of, of creating an experience and we like, I like to say it, it transports the customer to a different place and they feel special. And I think that that's why COVID has been so hard is people don't feel like they're being transported anymore. It doesn't right. feel like it's this unique experience. And that's what we like to do and here here at The Collective. And I think uh, the thing that people miss often is the concept doesn't come first, the space comes first. Right. And you could look at a space and it doesn't speak to and a pub, it doesn't speak to a French restaurant. So you kind of have to see the space. You look around, you see what you feel. You come up with these ideas and then it's like, OK, then you plug away and figure out what's next.
0: But each one has a different, uh, uh, you know, profit margin or profit and loss margin. So that's what I guess when people say, OK, how, how can you define success when, you know, you can open a steak restaurant, there's a different uh, uh profit margin versus a, a Chinese restaurant. I'm just using an example or a okay. uh, 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 Tex-Mex restaurant and all those profit margins differ. How do you balance that, Michael?
3: Look, I think you have to take each one individually. Um, I think sometimes some of the things that that's more challenging is the smaller the restaurant, the harder it is to, to create a larger profit margin. Yes. Which people don't realize. But the other difficulty with that is in order to do a bigger restaurant, you need to raise more capital. So, it's like that double-edged sword of, do I raise more capital and money that I have to pay off via right. returns, or am I raising less money? The returns are lower. So yeah, you kind of have to figure it out that way and you want to balance it. I mean, if you're nobody, I mean, people talk about it to get into politics, but people talk about like, okay, we're going to raise the, the tax rates, we're going to raise minimum wage, we're going to raise all that stuff. And I, and I always say to people who, who want to get in this conversation, let's not kid ourselves. People who are in business, who are operating, say, at a 10% margin, mm-hmm. if they raise taxes and they raise employment, payroll, and they raise all that stuff, we're not going to operate at 2%. <laughs> we're going to still operate at 10% and something is going to be cut. Right. If you want to raise minimum wage to $15 an hour, like, okay, but, but let's be realistic. Like, you're not going to have two employees to do that job. You're going to have one employee to do right. that job. Mm-hmm. or the guest is going to have to pay twice as much to get that food the the operator or the business person or owner isn't going to let it hit their pocket totally
0: now when I, when we talk about the whole process because in my mind you know for a restaurant business like yours when, because you're not a casual restaurant business yeah. you know and so the whole takeout or the whole curbside experience wasn't part of the business model Before COVID-19, how is that settling into your business model now?
3: Look, I think I think for us, our business model is there is design. There is service. Mm -hmm. You have lighting, which creates this beautiful ambiance.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: OK, you have music, which creates this other piece of the ambiance. Okay, and then you have food. Right. OK, so if you take all of those pieces, those five pieces, the only one that you could put in a box is food. Right. So if you you think about a business model of like only one fifth of the things that we do well can translate to a house and that's not even going to translate into the house as well. Right. It's a really difficult situation for us. So, I mean, it's pivoting in terms of, um, what, what we put into that box, the type of box that we use. Um, but honestly, like we, we haven't made a huge push to get into that takeout delivery because I, I just think that it really destroys the brand and as you know it's like you, your brand is is something that you could never recreate. Well, like you know, once, once I, you get that negative opinion on that or right. that piece on that, you're screwed.
0: Well, you know, it's really uh, I have to agree with you, Michael. You know, I was just so uh, my wife and I we have a favorite restaurant we, we Italian restaurant we go to, and uh, of course she doesn't want to go in the restaurant, so we did. We did curbside, and we yeah. went and picked it up, and and uh, brought it home again. And for the second time in a row, it didn't taste like the experience that we had in the restaurant. And I had to tell her last night, babe, you know, when we get it, it's usually warmer. You know, usually dealing with a nice atmosphere, uh, yeah. we're having a conversation. There's a lot of people around. And it feels, you know, like you're saying. I, I have to agree with you, Michael, because. A lot of things go goes into the food experience. Sometimes people want the romance. Sometimes people want the the the, the music, the loudness, the activity. I'm, I'm an activity guy. I like I like to walk into a bustling. I like to play with the the waiter or waitress. You know, I like to have a relationship with that person, and I like to be around people who are talking. And that's lost if you yep. do a curbside. So so, but it all comes back to the food. The food did not taste like the same experience I had when I go into that restaurant. It's one of our favorite restaurants. And that's all you're saying right now, we we can do that, but something's going to be missing and you don't want to be victimized by the missing part of saying your food quality yeah. has changed or the I mean, experience. You think, if changed.
3: You think about it. You look at the food, it comes out on a plate, right? You're not doing anything to it. You don't have to clean it up. You have great music. You have great lighting. You have great ambiance. You're in energy, right? Like all of those pieces are part of the puzzle. When you take that, you have to literally get in your car, you drive to the place, you get home, you take it out, you open it up. It doesn't look as good as it looked on a plate. You have to put it on a plate. You have to get your silverware out. Your kids are yelling and screaming because they're hungry. (laughs) Like something is missed. Something's not at your disposal. It's just like the whole process is just lost. And by the time you eat the food, you're like, yeah, this isn't working for me.
0: Right, and it was, you know, and, uh, I mean, first of all, you, you're hitting so many positive nerves with me right now because I experienced this last night, Michael, and I'm going like, I put the pepper on the pizza, I put the the, the parmesan, and again, it was, uh, you know, I'm pulling, a, I'm, I'm setting it up myself, so I've lost some of the ambiance because I'm doing all the work, and you know, for a fact, when you do all the work, you're gonna do it in a whatever style. Whatever gets yeah. the whatever gets the job done, you're gonna do it. You've lost all standards of service for yourself, and that that's really funny because, like I said, when I when I push the idea, and I'm always talking to different people about how they are trying to be successful with their business, but you're the first person I've talked to that really hit a a, a button with me to say, Rashad, the problem you having is that curbside work, but you lost the experience, which in turn affected how I enjoyed the food.
3: Yeah. I mean I, I mean, I say to my business partners, and I'm a chef, okay, I've, I've been cooking my whole life, I went to culinary school, mm-hmm. I worked in, in restaurants, some of the top restaurants in America, mm-hmm. I worked in Japan, blah, 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 okay? There's three elements to a restaurant, okay? There's food, there's service, and there's design. Right. Okay? I'm going to ask you this question. I'm a chef. What's the most important piece in my mind? Food, to me. no. Design. Okay. What's the second most important? In my mind, I'm a chef.
0: Okay. Well, when, when you say design- Service.
3: You, service. And I'm going to tell you, food is third, and I'm going to tell you why. You okay. walk into a restaurant- So it's design, service, then food. Okay. Design, service, food, in that okay. order. Okay. You walk into a restaurant, it's the most beautiful restaurant in the world. Right. It's fun. There's like great people in there. You're having a great time. It's energetic. The hospitality is off the charts. You're like, oh, my God, like I'm playing with this server. This server was awesome. (laughs) I'm having such a great time. I'm smiling. You get the food. You're with your friends. You're like, it's okay. It's okay. You walk out. You're like, wow, I had a great time. That place was good looking. It was fun. It was awesome. Okay, Are you going back?
0: Wow. You know. You're
3: going back. You're totally going back
0: to that place. Well, this is where I'm caught up right now, Michael, because you hit me in the jaw right now because I lost. The 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 design and I lost the surface when I did curbside yeah. and and guess what I don't want to do that anymore I don't want yeah. to go back and have that experience because I don't know so so it's left a bad taste in my mouth because it's happened two times in a row so yeah. so you're fighting for that has it been successful for you
3: look it's nothing is successful right now I mean to me the definition of success is survival and getting to the other side right. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not. I mean, our food isn't doesn't translate into takeout. Most right. of our restaurants. I mean, the only one that we have that really works for takeout that people get takeout of is sushi. I mean, if you think about takeout, it's like we want some pizza, we want some sushi, <laughs> we want some burgers. <laughs> right. we, like, if so you chicken, have a fine dining yeah. Italian restaurant, mm-hmm. you're never going to compete with the local Italian place that does chicken farm for twelve dollars. Right. Mm-hmm. So, like, why why try and compete with them? Like, you're it's just going to lose. It's a losing model.
0: Right. So, we, you know, when you talk about ambience, you talk about the experience, you talk about servers. your your time you spend in Japan. Talk to us about that, because it seems like it shaped a lot of your values.
3: So so for me, living in Japan was just the most amazing experience. I worked at uh, Spago over there in the Four Seasons, and it wasn't necessarily about uh, working in those restaurants. To, to me, it was about understanding the culture. Right, And once you understand culture of what something is, you could create something here in the States that that feels authentic. And, and I think that's what people are really looking for in today's society. They want something that feels authentic um, and not like it's contrived or made up or or just or Disney World or something. They want it to feel authentic. Um, and that's probably what we do really well and, and I think is really important to us as a business.
0: Well, it it works for me. Now, before we got on air, I, I brought up the fact that, uh, you know, doing COVID hit, you know, I'm at the house and my wife is asking me what I want for breakfast, what I want for lunch. And I'm going to tell you, I'm a kind of a one and a half meal a day guy. So finally, I was eating a breakfast and then a lunch and a dinner. And all of a sudden, I realized I was gaining weight. <laughs>
2: Yeah,
0: And I went, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. We got to cut out one of these meals. So I got rid of the, because usually what I do, Michael, I get up, I get up at four o'clock Monday through Friday, get up at four o'clock. And so usually I eat about about 10 or 11 o'clock and she had me eating about eight o'clock in the morning. And then she came back with another meal about noontime and then she wrapped up by the, the third meal about six o'clock. Now, then I, I switched this story because here you are about to embarrass me because Instead of gaining weight, you lost 35 pounds in three months during the COVID, during COVID timeline. Let's talk about what made you do that and what was the motivation? Did you gain weight and you said, whoa, 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 I'm going to lose weight? What was the motivation?
3: Yeah, so, so for me, it's we do restaurants and we're opening a lot of restaurants. And, mm-hmm. and in restaurants, you're obviously tasting tons of food every day. right? So when I'm able to eliminate the tasting of food, that was just a huge starter for me. The other piece is... Pre-COVID, I mean, we had we had 14 restaurants. We were looking to open more. We were we were burning it all hours of the day, and finding time to go to the gym was just a nightmare. Right. Um, so I started to eat well. I ate the right foods. I stopped the tastings. I started to exercise more. Um, and it was figuring out. I mean, everyone has these diets that are like they're literally like this. Um, like, oh, I'm going to do with this juice in the morning, and I'm going to starve myself, and then I'm going to eat at night. Like everyone has something. For me, it was finding something where it's just like eating well, eating at the right times and exercising. And and the key key thing in there is the exercising. As long as you're exercising, and uh, I'm not a big runner. I don't enjoy running. I find it exhausting. So I would literally do a mile on the treadmill in the morning and then I would do a mile on the treadmill at night. I put some weights in there Mm -hmm. and I was good to go. So, so,
0: see, you 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 work out like me. That's me. Now, I always the, 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 somehow my show has become a a nice haven for to talk to chefs. So the Rocco comes on my show, Donna uh, Donatella comes on my show, and just to name a few, uh, Samuelson comes on my show. And now uh, you're on my show. When I hear the word "eat well," see, I, I need you to define to me what does that mean when you say eating well?
3: Eating well to me is clean. I think it's it's for breakfast. I, I think it's eating some yogurt, some berries, period, end of of conversation. Having a coffee and not putting creamer in there and Mm -hmm. sugars in there like I put a little non-dairy creamer in there, fine. For lunch, it's like have a nice salad, maybe you're cheating on some dressing, have a grilled piece of chicken, have some grilled shrimp, doing whatever you want. Dinner time, have a normal meal. Have a normal meal, have some carbohydrates, have some vegetables, have some fruits. But to me, eating well is like – you're eating a little cleaner. You're not depriving yourself. Your portion size is normal, right. meaning like you're not having 16 ounces of steak. You're having six to eight and you're not eating past eight o'clock. Like it depends on what time you go to bed, but like seven or eight o'clock should be it. Yes. Like if you're done at seven, eight o'clock, give up the bag of potato chips, give up the sweets, give up the sugars. <laughs> like I guarantee you, you will lose weight.
0: Well, you know, I, I, I naturally drink a lot of water. I know we're not getting into it. I know you're not a diet expert, Michael, but, you know, we're talking about losing weight. So I'm going to tell you something, Mike, 35 pounds in three months. You kind of you kind of level it into a diet expert range. And you like to say what? And I drink water naturally, but I'm a big dessert guy. I, I eat my dessert before my meals. It stuns people. I go to a restaurant. If I come to a restaurant, I say, excuse me, can you give me the dessert menu before I start ordering my meal? I'm that guy. I'm that guy. And so so a person like me who enjoys desserts, what does that play out in your menu world, in your restaurant world? Am, am I going to come to your restaurants, Michael, and be like, man, he got the dessert for me? Or are you more you, of an entree you guy? Gotta,
3: you, you can't, this is the problem with all diets, okay? Right. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to go on this extreme diet. Like right. you can't stop eating. Like if they give you a chocolate, I mean, you, you go to these restaurants, these uh-huh. chocolate cakes in half these restaurants are enough for three people. Mm-hmm. And people are eating the whole cake. So it's like, eat the cake. Just just have a piece of it. Right. Have a piece of the cake. Every day, have a piece of chocolate. Like chocolate's good for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. Chocolate's not bad for you. Berries are not bad for you. Some real ice cream is not bad for you. Have it, but you don't need a pint of ice cream, a cake, like a box of cookies and a bag of Doritos. Yeah. Like it just, that's not what you need.
0: Right. Right. But I am a guy that I will tell you, Mike, I am a guy. You know, I, I think I've accidentally uh, eaten correctly because I'm a guy. I, I order three different things, but I won't complete the meal. I already, yeah. So I'm, I call myself a sampler. You know, I would sample this dessert or I sample that, that, uh that appetizer. And I sampled that meal, you know. But I'm a big bread guy. I love bread to death. I, I, I bread this type of cornbread. I love that. I, I love veggies. But these are things like I said. I just accidentally eat, which I guess in a way uh, allows me to maintain a, a somewhat healthier lifestyle. But I drink a lot of water, like you said. You held up your bottle of water. But yeah. uh, I want to transition to because you do a lot of uh, you've, you've hosted several competitions, and these and I'm a big fan of competition shows, Michael. Yep. And so, but there's always some uh, 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 a winner and a loser, a winner and loser. How do you handle that in the judging process? Because you know, the decision that you make can ultimately tell somebody to walk away for walk off the show.
3: Listen, I teach my kids at a young age, like as lo- like work your ass off practice, try hard. And like, right. if you're good enough, you're going to win. And if there's somebody better than you, they're going to lose. And when you're judging, it's kind of like, look, like you're either winner, you lose. I mean, this whole thing with everybody gets a trophy today and right. like kids come home and you came in last place and you got a trophy, like, like it's BS. It's not teaching people to be able to lose. Right. Uh, people ask me all the time, you play games with your kids. Like, do you lose on purpose? No, I'm not going to lose on purpose. Like, why would I do that? You mm-hmm. need to teach them like mm-hmm. practice, practice, practice. <laughs>
2: right, right, right.
3: And like when you do all of those things, you'll figure it out. And it's the same thing with cooking. It's like, there are going to be people who are better than me at cooking and you may lose, but it is what it is. And, and look, one of the biggest, one of the questions that I always ask is right. uh, in interviews, it has to do with that is what do you not allow in your life? Is it harder for you? Is it, which is true for you. I hate to lose
0: mm-hmm.
3: or I love to win. And for me, the answer is I hate to lose. L- losing is just mm-hmm. not an answer. Like, I right. expect to win. So winning, when I win, it's like, okay, let me get up again and play again. Let me play again. But when I lose, I'm furious. Right. And I think that's kind of just the mentality of people.
0: Cool. Before we go, I want to talk about a new, you have a new restaurant concept opening in Philadelphia called Midtown Village. Tell us about that. And uh, why now?
3: Yeah, so, we're, uh, so, so it's interesting. And you spoke about what happens during COVID. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a lot of restaurants that are going out of business. I mm-hmm. think our business model used to be take a space and build out a restaurant. It would mm-hmm. cost us a thousand to mm-hmm. fifteen hundred dollars a square foot to build it out. Mm-hmm. Now our business model has shifted. Right. We can take restaurants that have closed, and we can mm-hmm. spend three hundred to five hundred a square foot on some really good opportunities because COVID's going to be over. Right, we're going to get to the other side. Right. So here are some opportunities that we have. And one of them is it's in an area called Midtown Village. It's going to be a, a, the name isn't known yet. We're not sure of the name, but it's right. going to be a, a boutique pizza place, brick oven pizza with some uh, lots of seasonal vegetables seasonal and stuff like that. So
0: it's a more casual dining.
3: Yeah, definitely more casual. Okay, yeah, cool. I okay, think that cool. that's kind of where people are going right now in mm-hmm. terms of the COVID. Mm-hmm. I'm not looking to do any fancy high-end restaurants right, right now, but if you could get some casual places in now, like I think we're good.
0: Cool. Hey, Michael, thank you, man, for coming on Money Making Conversations. I hope you come back uh, for Thanks skinnier. Back, I don't know well, if I want you coming back skinnier, though, Mike. 35 uh, pounds. Can we stay there? i appreciate you man uh, enjoy Good yourself time. and uh, definitely tell them to send some i, I come to philadelphia a lot because i represent stephen a smith so we always in that area the new jersey new york area and i love to drop by so if i don't yeah, mind give you a right. heads up okay reach out okay appreciate you michael stay strong yeah. so i got a couple of industry decision makers as my next guest they are jessica myers and devon reeves since 2019 Principals Jessica Myers and Devon Reeds have acquired more than $14 million in commercial real estate assets with a focus on hotels and multifamily structures. The firm works with passive investors seeking attractive long term investment strategies to grow their real estate Portfolio. Jessica, who's a proud member of AKA, uh, Africa for Alpha already Incorporated. That's another word. You know, you, you're gonna do it either way. You know, you're gonna have to give it the whole name, or you're just gonna say one of the same. You're gonna say both of them. Founded, okay. Both of them founded Epic Collective with her friend Donna Reef. They're all both then based in Atlanta, Georgia, where my show Money Making Conversation originates. They will be discussing how to raise capital and how to buy a hotel. Something I've never thought of in my life. I just bought a building. Now, trying to buy a hotel is not even closely in my whole brain process. Please welcome the money-making conversation, Jessica Myers, aka, and Devon Reeves. <laughs>
4: hi hi thank you so much for having us we're so excited to be
0: here well thank yes. you very much uh ms Thanks. Reeves, let's start out with you you know I, I put all that aka love all on jessica i gotta move my love over you just letting you know you know you're just as important to me as well you know i'm just a member of omega side five fraternity so i always gotta that's ship all that right
5: that's all right, that's all right. Love. so i'm not happening? greek but my, my my dad he's a he's a proud he's he's a He's a big fan of P-Funk. So how about that? So that's my (laughs) affiliation.
0: Make my (laughs) funk the P-Funk. i gonna tell you something. I was there when the mothership landed. So I'm all right (laughs) with your dad. I'm all right with your dad. Tell us a little background about yourself, Devon. Oh, sure.
5: Well, thank you so much for having us, Rashawn. My name is um, Devon Reeves. I've Mm -hmm. actually been in the hotel industry for over 14 years. Mm -hmm. I got my start off as a uh, front desk agent. Uh, So my background includes operations, feasibility studies, asset management Mm
0: -hmm. and uh, now i can add hotel owner now hotel owner you just throw that out there so casually and uh i don't have a clue as to what that means i bought a car i bought a boat i bought clothes on a regular basis shoes i bought a building (laughs) but you just throwing out the word hotel like that's like that's something we just get on a regular basis when we go to a bed bath and beyond or something like that
5: well, you know what? I'm trying to educate people so they can do that. So we can add hotel ownership to the conversation. Now, I mean, Jessica, is she being too casual with don't, this, don't Jessica? I do realize that hotel ownership is actually like you're buying in, into a franchise. Right. So hotels, Its, Marriott, Hilton, they only own less than 3% of hotels in their inventory. So that opens opportunities for mm-hmm. people like you and I who are, we consider ourselves small businesses. Um, We can actually own a hotel. Over 60 percent of the hotels in the United States are actually owned by small, small businesses.
0: Uh, Jessica, should I be nervous to even consider the prospect of wanting to get into the franchising business of owning a hotel?
4: Oh, definitely. Definitely not. Especially when you have the right team around you to make sure it happens. Um, And that's the goal. We really want to change the narrative and make it more of a conversational piece. And that's what we hope to do, like blaze the trail so that you now can see, hey, it's attainable. It's about owning franchise opportunities. Look at it that simply. And that's that's really uh, what we look to do is to raise the narrative so that we're changing the conversation. And it is something just like Q-tips are now, you know, just the thing that you say. We really want it to be hotel ownerships like, duh, that's that's what you do. And that's the importance of what we're creating
0: with Epic Collective. Now, Epic Collective, that's a that's a cool name, E-P-I-Q, which is a. Interesting spelling there. And I have to ask, why is the spelling that way?
5: Well, we like to be different.
0: So <laughs> when you it. think
5: of epic, you think of E-P-I-C. Well, we're different. We're two unique ladies, <laughs> as mm-hmm. you can see. Um, doing epic things, uh, create and doing we're doing it collectively. Mm-hmm. So that's why we want to be uh unique and different, like I just said, as far as up, oh, can
0: you? Oh, as far as that's why we add the cue to it. Well, it's a, the great thing about it, I'm, I'm in, interviewing both of you. You're ladies, and um, you know, coming into business, they said the fastest growing uh sector of of entrepreneurship is females, and especially African American females. So I'm looking at through two done. dynamic. I'm interviewing yes. two dynamic ladies based out of Atlanta. So let me ask you this, Jessica: How did you two connect to become founders and become business partners?
4: Well, actually, we went to college together Mm -hmm. and we just stayed in touch through the years. Mm -hmm. And it came a point where we were both in our um, entrepreneurial journey. Devon had moved to Boston. I moved to New York and we moved back to Atlanta. And it was like, hey, let's meet up for lunch. Mm -hmm. And then lunch date after lunch date, before you know it, we're exploring dreams. We're exploring visions. And knowing what Devon was doing in the hospitality space, I started out as a wholesaler. And mm-hmm. she would often tell me like, hey, you know what you're doing in the hotel, whole, um, wholesaling space is still real estate. Right. You can apply those same aspects of what you're doing on, you know, the single family side. You can apply that to the commercial side. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Ah, oh. like because in the in the wholesaling space, not many people are talking about owning a hotel. We're doing one family at a time. But that is a great entryway to get into the industry, to learn the lingo and learn the language. But just going to lunch with Devon, who has the hotel experience, she's like, hey, you really need to start looking at these skills and and how to go in and and do these strategies so that you can acquire more units. Because she knew that my passion was to acquire a thousand doors. And she was like, doing it one door at a time is not effective. Hotels will allow you to do it even further um, and collectively. So that's, that's been a
0: part of our journey okay uh i'll be remiss what properties and from a franchising standpoint are you guys tied to right now
5: uh currently we are tied to hilton the hilton franchise we acquired an 85 room um home two suites in el reno oklahoma
0: okay cool now comes with that is employment and you acquired and i'm assuming in uh what year did you acquire uh 2020. Okay, so cool. we
5: acquired it during COVID.
0: Do, uh, uh, <laughs> COVID when, um, so let's let's talk about that. You know, because you were not you like I bought my building during COVID. So yeah, I had during, a vision during,
4: during down economies right. are when most millionaires are made. Right. It's about seizing and looking for opportunity. Right. But you have to, as, as I always say, stay ready, don't have to get ready. So now, it's like when you're already ready to seize the moment, you have your team around you, you're looking for opportunity. That's how a down market you can now capitalize on those elements.
0: But you're in a hospitality world. And we know that was hit tremendously. But I always believe that. But you're in a different hospitality because you're not tied to vacationing. You're not tied to results. You're okay. tied to daily travelers who are on the road. And that never stopped. You know, the daily on the road travel. In fact, people travel more, increase their road travel and diminish their air travel. So talk about that whole concept of knowing and putting your business plan together, saying, you know, some we feel we're aligning ourselves with the right format because we're not buying a resort. We're buying a I like to say a business hotel. We deal with daily travels. They're not long term stay, usually a day, maybe two days or weekend stay. Is that part of the process in uh, making that purchase or one that you should pursue?
5: Absolutely. I actually encourage and what you're talking about, you're talking about limited service hotels, And I Hmm. encourage that the first time hotel owners. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I encourage that, because like you mentioned, you know, during a downtime, during downturn, even, you know, 10 years ago with the last um, real estate crash, the hospitality industry took a hit as well. Not as hard as this hit, but it still took a hit. And that's what actually got me thinking because I was actually working in a hotel the last downturn about 10 years ago. And I remember jobs being lost. Hotels, we, no one, you know, hotels didn't have to close down fortunately. Right. But I remember that and that stayed with me and I said, you know what? The next opportunity I'm going to take advantage of that and I'm going to look into limited service hotels and I'm going to look at those, those hotels that are on the side of the road. I'm going to look at those people who are just, you know, mm-hmm. I want to drive. I want to do this and not necessarily focus on resorts because mm-hmm. the first thing that happens during a downturn, um, people cut their travel budgets. That's the first thing.
0: Right. Now, it's interesting. Now, you're in Oklahoma. You based in Atlanta. You bought a whole property in Oklahoma. How do you supervise it? How do you maintain quality control of a property that's you know several hundred miles away from you?
4: Well, that's why we that's why we emphasize having the the right team and okay. having an operator on our team. They handle the day to day, so that we can continue on um, about you know the operations of Epic Collective while they are there. You know. We don't get the calls in the middle of the night like, hey, this maid didn't show up for work or the front desk worker <laughs> is running late because we have an operator in place that handles that for us.
0: I know you don't want to get the call that the maid is late and you're in Atlanta. That that mm-hmm. does. And it's, mm-hmm. on, it's on central time zone, too. So you don't want to get that call. You're on eastern time zone. But you have to deal with putting the team together. Uh, I'm, I'm talking to two fantastic entrepreneurs here. What exactly is your team?
5: So your team would include having a broker, mm-hmm. uh, your team would include having an operator that Jessica just mentioned, and also your team would include having a brand. Um, so we Hilton is a part of the team, um, also having a lender. So Rashawn, you just mentioned how you purchased the building. So if you notice some of the concepts that we're talking about, it probably can translate into because mm-hmm. a building, office building or whatever type of building is still a form of commercial real right. estate. Mm-hmm. So the fundamentals are definitely the same. So having that team to help you find the location, uh, you know, you start out with having your ownership thesis, uh, you start out with, you know, finding a lender and typically your broker can help you find a lender or working with a hotel consultant or an asset manager. So all of those are the key pl- key players to help you find, a, a, you want to find a profitable hotel. So I teach hotel when I teach people to buy hotels, I teach people so that way they can become successful and profitable hotel owners and not just the regular hotel owner.
0: Well, you know, it's really interesting when I'm talking to you because it is a mindset. Let's go and be honest. You know, like I said, uh, you know, you know it, 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 when you talk about entrepreneurs, they they want to buy like a franchise, a, a, a casual dining franchise or a fast food franchise, or a maid made service-related franchise. And so, but when you start talking about a building, and I'm just... I'm just I try to have honest conversations on that because I can't even fathom that process. And so and I, and, I, and I know you have a history of hospitality service. So you've seen the, the technique. And from the same point, Jessica, you have a wholesale. But how does a regular person like me, even though I'm successful, become a person who will find interest in the type of long term investment opportunities that you guys provide?
4: Well, as she mentioned, that's where it's important to develop your ownership thesis because the name of the game is cash flow in yes. any industry, right. and it's now understanding at what point am I willing and looking to come in right. to this process to go ahead and get it started, which mm-hmm. comes with what? Where where am I before you start a destination, or, or if we we set off to go to a road trip to New York, you really want to find out. Well, where am I right now? I'm in Georgia. I'm in Atlanta. And now I can build the road to success. So Mm -hmm. that's what she meant as far as um, the ownership thesis and understanding where is it that you are right now? What tools do you have access to, which will help to determine where it is that you're looking to go and grow in your cash flow journey?
0: Well, you know, Uh, I, I remember I had an opportunity when I was managing Steve Harvey. You were sitting down and we were thinking about buying a El Pollo Loco. Okay, and then you know, because what we what, what we learned from that meeting was that you can't rich get rich off one El Pollo Loco. You know, right. you got to have several. You know, because when they start talking about you know the profit margin, maybe like fifteen thousand dollars a month, you know, it really shook us up. Oh, well, that's not that much money. When you start at twelve, that's a lot of work for that's your pop, profit margin. You know, at the time that we was talking to them, so being a franchisee. So, what is that? Is there a magic number of uh, properties that you should own before you really start resonating, be calling it? You know, because you know when you own property, you're a millionaire already. But are you a millionaire in your bank account? That's what I'm talking about. When you can, when you can floss your success, you know, bigger houses bigger cars, bigger vacations. So, is there a model in place now that you go, we got the one in Oklahoma, then we're going to get three more properties and we feel that we'll be resonating as a, as a as a firm that one day can be, you know, a, a Fortune 500.
5: So, that's actually a good point and that's going back to your ownership pieces. So, yes. um hotels you can let it look at it a couple ways. You can focus on cash flow, yes. right? And that's an easier way to build a portfolio probably faster. Or you can look at more. you mentioned long term hotels are definitely capital intensive and definitely a long term investment. Right. So um, a buy and hold strategy. But if you want to really build a portfolio, uh, you start you you have a combination of both. You have a combination of having a cash flow property, which is more of a limited service. So maybe even more of an economy like a super eight or a, a days in. Those are what you consider economy hotels. Those are true. Or even a motel six. Those are good cash loan properties, And a lot of folks, um, including the Indian community, they own over 50% of the hotels using that model. They started off with really small hotels, Mm -hmm. less than 100 cash loan properties, and that's how they will build portfolios. Mm -hmm. And those are the same techniques that we're using. Mm -hmm. Starting off with smaller hotels, cash loan, Hilton. uh, When you start getting into the Hilton and the Marriott, we were fortunate usually people in their later years in um, the hospitality industry get into more of the Hilton and the Marriott. Uh, but we mo- we looked at more of a a, a hold um, hold approach, buy and hold approach.
0: Right. So so Jessica, when I look up, tell everybody, I'm interviewing Jessica Myers and uh, Devon Reed, uh, they're the founders of Epic Collective. Um, they're in the hospitality business. They buy and collect hotels. They seek out investors to uh, look at the long term investment opportunities they can do. Working with them, so I'm I'm, I'm a good talker. I'm a, I'm gonna lie, I'm a good talker, but I'm, I don't know if I'm a good enough talker to convince people to give me money. So <laughs> th- see, that's a say. I, I've heard. See, Jessica can talk. You know, I'm not saying Devon. You can talk too. But Jessica over there, she got a little bit extra in her conversation. So when y'all go in there making the presentation, who's the talker or who's the lead person in the pitch?
5: I mean, for me when the ho- with the hotels. Okay. Yeah,
4: I was like, it's a collaborative effort, okay. I feel, because I always tell Devine, I mean, technically, you know, you're the one who, who brought me into the hotel right. space and the commercial right. space. It's right. not something I was looking into, you know, I'm in the single family space. I'm a real estate developer mm-hmm. um, as a wholesaler. You know, I was I was just fine but someone to <laughs> shed light to like hey this could be a lot more exponential so i would say that she convinced me and i'm the type of person you know i used to i had a career in sales prior to getting to real estate right. and i would say once i see something that works I'm going to go tell everybody and that's and that's the power of what we've been able to create through Epic Collective because Devon is the one that got me into the commercial space. And now we're able to tag team and tell people in our community like, you know, we knew a lot of people from Georgia State. We knew um, University, which is where we went and where we met. Mm -hmm. Um, We know a lot of people just from from networking from building our team, from going to the events, the groundwork. Navon having a 14-year career in in the hotel space, she mm-hmm. knew a lot of people. Right. So it was really about identifying the opportunity, providing the education to take advantage of the opportunity, and then executing on the opportunity.
0: Well, you know, um, this is Rashawn McDonald try to walk me into the steps of becoming a potential investor or the steps of being a potential hotel owner or Rashawn. do. Cause like, this is what I hear, you know, like you, you try to own a McDonald's, they they bring you into a McDonald's and you have to work so you can understand. I'm sure the same thing with Chick-fil-A, same thing with Burger King. If I want to become a hotel owner, do I got to go over there and make up beds, clean out some restrooms or do, what, what amount of work do I have to put in to feel that I need to understand the business of hospitality.
5: That goes back to your ownership thesis. If you want to do, if you want to become an owner operator, meaning then you will be doing that, what you just said. You will be checking in folks and
0: making the bed. And that's you what y'all, y'all doing? To... Y'all not doing that. Y'all don't want to be that.
5: No, we're not doing oh. that. <laughs> no, we're not doing that. I refuse to check in another guest. That's why I hire. So if I had to check in guests at this point in my career, somebody getting fired. <laughs> and, and, part, and part of my strategy is owning my
4: time so that I don't have to work. So right. I definitely... And looking for more, (laughs) you
5: know, the latter as far as, you know, what I, what was on my ownership (laughs) pieces. I love y'all. I want to add to what you just said. Hotels are operating business where you can own a real estate. Right. McDonald's, Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily own a real estate, right? Right. So Mm -hmm. that's what makes hotels a very attractive investment because not only are you owning the business, you're owning the real estate, which adds to the valuation. So for someone like yourself who wants to come in and invest, you and especially if you want to invest passively, you like, look, I have some extra funds. You know, I have some retirement funds or whatever. I'm looking to invest long term. OK, you actually and I want to get more of a higher return than what I'm getting in the market or whatever my my other uh, real estate investments. That's why hotels are a sexy asset, because it goes off of performance. So think about it. Just think about it. Mm-hmm. Nobody's really traveling right now. Right. But in a couple years. When people feel more comfortable about traveling with COVID, hotels are going to be booked solid.
0: Right. Right.
5: And we- so, with pe- Sometimes people, they, they can't wrap their brain around it. like, oh, nobody's staying in hotels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right now, nobody's mm-hmm. staying in hotels. Mm-hmm. But in a couple of years, maybe even next year, maybe even the end of this year, right. people are going to be traveling in our hotels and our, our, our investments going to be nice and, and beautiful and fat cause people, <laughs> because of the return on
0: investment. Well, you know, I- I'm going to be honest with you. I-, I see the opportunity, you know, because people are traveling now. People are resisting because it's called cabin fever. I got to get out. I gotta right. get out, and that goes back to the marketing of your property. Do you have you guys? Because I, I hear the word team, but you know, you it's still a property. You know, Hilton, you you're part of their registry. You go in there, you do a search, and it pops up, and and I'm I'm sure you play a, a royalty fee to them for using their right. brand relationship because they provide that service to you, and it helps you help you win. But in the end. You said something about profitable hotel properties. That's what you should be buying. You should not be trying to build up a property that's not successful. You should go in and look at the portfolio. How does that process work?
5: Well, the three three things that makes a hotel successful. Right. Location, brand, and operator. So to give you an idea about our hotel, our hotel is in Oklahoma. Our hotel is right off the exit. So if you're driving by and you want to stop, Boom, right off the exit. Beautiful new home two suites property, extended stay property with the kitchenette, right? So then we have the brand. The brand is a Hilton property. How many people have stayed in Hilton brands? Rashawn, I'm sure you stayed at a Hilton brand. You loved it. You felt comfortable. You like, oh my goodness. I know when I stayed at Hilton brand, I'm I know what I'm getting into. Then we brought in an operator. Mm -hmm. Commonwealth Hotels, they manage over. They have over a billion dollars in their portfolio. So we have the three components to make a hotel successful.
0: And I'm going to tell you something. uh, That property, you do the early morning breakfast. We do. See, that's 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 the home run for me. See, I'm an I'm old school. Back in the day when I was traveling as a stand-up comic, I had to stay at the hotel and gave me the free breakfast in the morning, the waffles, the eggs, scrambled eggs, and give me some orange juice. So that's a big selling point, correct? It is, yes. You know, you got to have those incentives because of the fact that it's a very competitive world out there. But you're hitting, that's what I was just saying, is that I wasn't annoyed at the fact that, because I knew you were off the hotel, off the property. You see, you get a lot of people who just, I'm tired of driving, pull over. You get that type of customer. Yeah, then you also yeah, get the customers yeah. to say, yeah. hey.
4: I had, I had actually had a few friends that were driving cross-country. Cross uh-huh. And when the news broke, they were like, I actually was going to stop off in um, Tulsa. But right. we're actually going to stop off in El Reno, which mm-hmm. is just two hours from Tulsa, mm-hmm. which was even more impactful, I will say, looking right. into this deal, is understanding that years and years ago, my ancestors couldn't walk through the front door. Right. And now, here we stand as owners of the property and able to provide jobs, we're able to save jobs. Like where people are getting axed during during the pandemic, we're able to save jobs and increase their quality of living. There were we we went and talked to the staff, and some of them hadn't had vacation in years. Wow, some of them didn't even have a four hundred one k. So we were able to come in provide these resources. So it's the impact to the community as well as um, you know the people that we're able to inspire through our story.
0: Well, you know, when I, when I, first of all, thank you for coming on Money Making Conversation because you go, you still. I have six sisters and I have, a, I have a daughter. You know, she's graduated from college. And so anytime I, I see inspirational stories by females, especially African American female, I want to highlight. And that's what I'm doing right now. You know, I, I'm just one of many opportunities that are coming your way or will come your way in the future because you reason I say that because I'm always about trying to see the, the different where it lanes of opportunity because you know people tend to pigeonhole black people or african-americans you know they'll say we don't do we don't understand technology so they they that's why silicon valley said we we weren't looking to hire you guys because we didn't think you guys wanted technology opportunity we thought y'all just wanted to use the phone and so so it's the same thing here with this hotel opportunity is that I, i'm just trying to answer common sense questions because i want you to understand that this is incredible what you are doing. It really is incredible. And I say that because of the fact that it's not normal. And that's a positive thing because I think African Americans in order to achieve ultimate success in this country have to do against the norm and the norm and what you guys are achieving against the norm. But you're also taking your experience as former employees. And say, hey, I want to, I want to bet on myself. And, and, and close it. I want to talk about that betting on yourself and walking through the unknown. So I want to start. I know, Jessica, I want to start with you on, on, on betting on yourself. And, cause that's what you're happening right now. You're betting on yourself in a hotel business, but you're betting on yourself as an entrepreneur. You're betting on yourself by convincing people they should invest their money into you for long term opportunity. How does that work? Or, 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 or what are the stages that, that slow you down to go, wow, I'm doing this?
4: Well, I mean, really, we're still in the midst of doing this. I mean, my head is very much still down um, as I am a real estate developer and investor. But it started out being a wholesaler. That journey of investing in myself and believing in myself, once I closed my first wholesale deal. And wholesaling is the act of finding an opportunity and passing it on to a buyer. And it's about understanding the language. It's about understanding, hmm. You can make money off your assets and let your assets pay for your liabilities. Mm -hmm. That's when I started to change the narrative and the conversation. And then I realized, like, it took me three weeks to come up with my first wholesale deal after getting the education. How long am I working in corporate America to make the same type of money? Right. That's when I understood it's the conversation of time. Where am I putting my time to invest to get me greater? And that's how I saw wholesaling as a way to get in and bet on myself. That worst case, no matter where I grew to, which is now, you know, from wholesaler to hotel owner, Mm -hmm. I actually have a course teaching your start in real estate investing from wholesaler to hotel owner, because I never knew that that was possible. But I knew that if I take the bet on myself, I at least have wholesaling that I can fall back on to make my money, to make my income. And the sky has been the limit. I haven't had to go back to corporate America since 2017. And don't get me wrong. There have been times where I come home like, let me just quit. I can get back into sales. I can get back to doing what I do. But I'm like, just as haughty as I was about working for Fox, as haughty as I was about working for CBS, I'm just as grateful to work for
5: Jessica Myers. And that's betting on yourself.
0: Wow. Ms. Reeves?
5: Betting on myself. It was just more of a motivation thing. I looked around and I saw all these people, hotel owners or potential hotel owners, and all of them were white. Right. And they own hundreds of acres of land, some even thousands of acres of land. And a lot of them inherited. A lot of them bought it. Mm -hmm. And I said, wait a minute, I can do this. Mm-hmm. I'm helping them do it. So why am I helping somebody else be wealthy when I can help myself be wealthy? Mm-hmm. And I thought about people like my grandmother, who at our age, she couldn't check in at a Hilton property. Mm-hmm. She couldn't check in, you know, a day's in because of the color of her skin. She mm-hmm. couldn't even when my grandmother was on the on on, a, uh, she wasn't in, back in those days in the, the 50s and 60s and 40s. You had to have a certain level of education to even work in a hotel. And my grandmother only had an eighth grade education. So I had to bet on myself and my grandmother. That's what I was doing. So that way, and not even that, I wanted to help other people get to the table. I noticed I was the only person of color. Sometimes I was the youngest, the only person of color and the woman, sometimes all three at the table. And I said, this is not right. Mm. My mentor told me, she said, Devon, she said, when you are sitting at the table and you notice that there is no other people looking like you, you need to change that. And she said, when you don't notice it, then that's a problem. Then you become the problem if you don't keep that door open. She told me, she said, Devon, I, o- I helped open the door for you. Now it's time for you to keep that door open. So I had to bet on myself. And I realized from the, all the encouraging words and the love and support, I realized that this is bigger than me. This is bigger than me and Jessica. We have people who are looking at us who are like, wow, you know what? I can own a hotel. I can do the impossible. I, You know, front desk agents and housekeeping supervisors, they're like, you know what? I can literally do this. I can create my own hotel and create possibilities because think because hotels is actually brings over eight million jobs to the to the economy. And people don't even think that, you know, if you are if you're an artist or if you have a skincare line or or if you have lotions or you have all these different products, you can become a vendor and you become a vendor to a hotel. But see, people don't know that. So right. now when you have faces like us who can help get you in that door, we're creating more opportunities and creating more possibilities. So that's why I had to better myself, not only to so I can create a seat at the table so people can listen to me. Because when I noticed when I didn't have any ownership rights, nobody wasn't listening to anything that I said. But now people are knocking down the doors to hear what I have to say.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, Jessica, yeah,
5: we, we've been we've been
4: like a few year overnight success. You know how people say, oh, it's an overnight success. Like, this is years and years of work, you know, Devon putting 14, 15 plus years into the industry, me five years into the industry. This is a journey of overnight success. This isn't just something that popped up in microwave.
0: Well, I, I love it And I, by the way, I said you could talk, Jessica I, I have to slide it back over to Devon She just showed me that she has the ability to articulate in great <laughs> length And put a sentence I after a sentence I i just right now I thought I was listening to Stephen A. Smith in real estate right there You know, she was just articulating Just throwing down with the words and the verbs And i see seat at the table and black America And I got to kick the door in and all that good stuff she was talking real stuff right
2: there, girl. When,
4: when they say iron chakras iron, it really <laughs> has been that between us in mm-hmm. that, you know, us working together, the synergy, we help to exchange, you know, she's more of the numbers, the data, you know, cool. And then, you know, I have the background in television and media. So that's where I have developed my storytelling skills. Right. But mm-hmm. we we feed off of each other and her energy and my energy. And that's how we created something epic.
0: Well, I'm gonna tell you, you created something, you opened my mind because like I said, uh, Thank you for allowing me to dive into your story honestly. You know to ask honest questions, and uh, if they it, it, because I didn't know, I didn't know there was a possibility. It was I, w- I, I wanted to bring you on the show to expose people to another level. And you said something about the impossible when you was, when you were speaking. It what you really shown us is that the possible is possible, and if we understand the possible is possible, then it's not impossible. And that's what I gathered from this interview is that we're sitting around and we're limiting the opportunity because we don't see that the the possibilities of a Achieving another lane of opportunity economically, entrepreneurially is out there. We will achieve it if we meet people like you, take courses that you guys recommend you take and also become a potential investor. You don't have to drop a million dollars down or two million dollars down. You can become a passive investor and build a portfolio with you guys and allow you guys to build that through your strategies. That's really what we're talking about right now. huh?
5: Yes. Oh, absolutely. We, we focus on collectively. A lot of people, because one of the barriers that people, they don't want to get in the hotel business or even get into commercial real estate because they may not have millions and millions of dollars or right. access to capital. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm like, well, wait a minute. If you have 10 of your friends or five of your friends and y'all have, you know, 5,000 a piece,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
5: that's what 50,000, right? right. Mm-hmm. Or if you have, you know, 100,000, if you got 10 of your friends, and that's a hundred thousand, that's a million dollars. That's you can do some damage. Right. You can get some stuff done. Mm-hmm. But people, but it's a whole mindset thing, right? So mm-hmm. it's a whole thing of educating people. So I have courses as well, I also offer one-on-one co- coaching for mm-hmm. people. They're like, and another thing that people don't realize is folks who have 20 Airbnb units, 30 Airbnb units. I'm like, you know, you own a small hotel. Right. They're like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. You know that there are different creative ways and creative financing to help you get into the hotel space. Mm-hmm. But people don't realize that. And the reason why I'm so passionate about it, because I see I see how hotels can create so much generational wealth. So much. It's it's corporations, Fortune 500 companies who own hotels. People may not know it. High net worth individuals. They own hotels. People don't know it. So I'm here like, hey, I know it. So let so let me help my people. Let me help y'all <laughs> get into this space so y'all can get. Not just bags, but create generational wealth. So I'm like, hey, instead of buying an Hermes bag, invest in a hotel. So that way, it's a long term strategy. That's that's how I look at things.
0: Hey, I love the way you look at it, uh, Jessica. Devon. I would
5: say do it collaborative.
0: Absolutely. I'm
4: collaborative economics. That's the biggest key is coming together and creating the synergy, creating your investor mm-hmm. group. You know, connecting with Epic Collective to show you how to do this, mm-hmm. how to take your community mm-hmm. and your small pot wherever you are, and how we can do this together. Um, that's really the big thing of changing the narrative of we work apart. We don't work together. We don't come together. Well, no, we're coming to show you that we do. We do in a major way. And this is how you can be a part.
0: Awesome. I want to thank you for coming on Money Making Conversation, Devon, thank Jessica, your guys are amazing. I, you know, in the summertime, love to invite you back just to let everybody we know.
5: We to get you to become a hotel owner. This conversation well, isn't over. I'm going to tell you something. Yeah.
0: I'm I, 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 with you yet. Please, you know, you're in Atlanta. So you come by the office, show me some stuff. I will be writing some checks because, again, you only go with what you know. And so you're right. telling me, Rashawn, slow it down, brother. Come on over here and sit down. So I I do want to become a hotel owner. I don't yes. what I've learned is, you know, God ain't making no more land out here. He ain't making no more new land. And so you you're telling me I can buy some of that land that he's made. And that means yes. that becomes an asset. And that becomes an asset that I can will down to my family members, to my Absolutely. daughter. And that's how you build legacy. And so sometimes you can keep it simple. You know, some it's not it can be go beyond my house. I can I'm buying all these houses out right here. But ain't nobody renting them. Okay, ain't nobody staying in them. I'm not making any money off my home purchases. So you said, Richard, if you you decide to stop buying a house, invest that money in a hotel, then guess what? As we say, mailbox money. You start making that mailbox money. Checks be coming in the mail. So, Devon, you ain't scaring me. You ain't scaring me. You just need to find me so we can talk about that hotel
5: business. Oh, i am find now. I'm a pit bull in the skirt. I don't think you want any of this. You better watch out.
0: All right. Okay. Thanks y'all for coming on Money Making Conversations. I appreciate you. Thank you,
5: Sean. <laughs>
4: cool. Thank you for the good. opportunity. And also, too, we just want to add that if you are looking to invest, if you are mm-hmm. looking to connect with our team, please, please, please follow us at Epic Collective with a Q on Instagram. Also, email us at invest at epiccollective.com. That's epic with a Q. Mm-hmm. EpicCollective.com. Let's do this collectively.
1: We will be right back with more money making conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald.
0: Hi, I'm Rashawn McDonald, the host of Money Making Conversation. The Cafe Mocha Swag Award is a celebration of black men who are making a difference in our community by empowering others to reach their life goals. From civic leaders, businessmen, activists, celebrities and everyday dads, the Cafe Mocha Swag Award winner this week is... Bubba Wallace. He is the only black driver who races full-time in NASCAR's top three series and has been outspoken about racial injustice in the wake of George Floyd's killing on May 25th. Bubba Wallace was a strong advocate for NASCAR's decision to ban the Confederate flag from its properties on June
3: 10th. It's been a long process, a hard-fought process, but it's all part of it. And uh, looking back on it, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Athletes are, are put on a pedestal, which we have to have to take that initiative and take that next step of being that role model and representing the best way we can to make sure we come across in the most positive light.
0: The Cafe Mocha Swag Award represents men who have strength, whose wisdom is assertive, and who is genuine in their spirit.
3: Welcome back
1: to Money-Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald.
0: My next guest is Justin Dawkins. He most recently launched a ser- and served as managing partner for Collab Capital, an investment firm that focuses on providing Black entrepreneurs to social, human, and financial capital. Can I repeat that? The social, human, and financial capital, they need to build profitable businesses. The goal is to help solve the growing racial wealth gap in America. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation. Long time, my friend, Justin Dawkins. How you doing, sir?
6: I'm doing well, Rashad. It's you know, great I, to see you. I had to make you, that little pivot in the long. chair,
0: you know, so I can really re- re- really look at you right quick, you know, because <laughs> we in the pandemic here, man. The racial gap, we gotten further apart. Our unemployment got further apart. And uh, the COVID-19 has made us to be, and we've been victimized by our health and whether well, it's our past bad health habits, but COVID-19 has really attacked the black community and the community of color. So how do we come out of this? Because you said by the year 2053, the median net worth for black households will be zero.
6: Yeah, um, well, let's let's start with with the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2020 was a wake up call for everybody. Mm-hmm. It, it was an opportunity. You were forced to sit down. You know, as my grandmother would say, and some of my elders would say, um, if you don't if you don't rest, if you don't sit down, your body will sit you down. Yes. And that, to me, is what what Black America has experienced, and um, a lot of other communities within the country. Uh, and it's exacerbated. It's highlighted and illuminated what has already been. Uh, bad or wrong, or where there were disparities, we, we're seeing it more. Uh, and uh, I think now is the time to be hyper intentional. I, I think your your intro was eloquent and elegant and poignant. And it mm-hmm. was you got, you got to establish these dreams. You got to start with uh, baby steps, smart goals. You know, take those big dreams and break them down into pieces, things that we can manage and, and do. Um, but that's what that's where it starts for me. Going forward for 2021 for black entrepreneurs and innovators is take those big grand ideas, break them down into smart goals and and get to work.
0: Well, you know, that, 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 that keyword get to work, you know, and so it's been an interesting year because. As as you move forward, you know, it's not the pandemic has almost put like everybody on a new welfare system because everybody's been asking for a handout. Everybody's been complaining that, you know, they, they can't find a job that they want, maybe a job that they need, because in the end, you want to be able to do something that makes you happy. You know, that's why we become entrepreneurs. We generally left jobs that we didn't feel satisfied in and started relying on our own personal skills. What is the motivating factor for 2021 for African-Americans to, to change the game for themselves?
6: I think the, the primary motivating factor is uh, taking into taking our own destiny uh, and putting it in our own hands. Right. I think we've I think we've looked for other communities and other people. Whether that be politicians, whether that be more affluent people, mm-hmm. uh, we've always looked to them to figure it out for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that that was one of the greatest lies ever told. Right. Uh, is that at the end of the day, um, you've got to you know pull yourself up. You do have to um, uh, be wary of those that promise things. So we do have to be mindful of that and look out for the traps. But ultimately, um, we have to center ourselves on on our goals and what we want to accomplish as a people and as a collective. And I think that's important.
0: Well, it's so much important. Here's the interesting thing. That's why I get annoyed when people give millennials a bad rap. They always say millennials want to skip steps, you know. Well, guess what? You know, when you looked at me growing up, because I'm older than you, you know, I was I was somewhat hindered. I was told to play a certain role in life, to to yeah. be a certain person that, you know, entrepreneurship wasn't even pitched to me, wasn't even thought of in my process. You know, I came from the hood. That was my number one goal was just to get out the hood. You know, then when I got my degree, I was supposed to get married and then I was supposed to settle down and be happy at a corporation. Millennials don't think that way. They uh, they believe in mentors. They believe in skipping steps if possible. What's wrong with skipping a step? If somebody can show you, you can avoid that. That's what uh, mentorship is all about. Talk about the bad rap that millennials get because they have more access to tech. They have more access to the clear understanding of social media, a better understanding of marketing and a better understanding of what an entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur is not just a, it's bigger than, it's more than just a, running a business. It's running a brand.
6: Yeah. Uh, I think the the biggest thing, and I think you hit the nail on here, we I'm a millennial. I'm at the very, <laughs> very beginning of it, uh, and uh, we get a bad rap uh, because we don't. We're not necessarily. Uh, we're not aware of where we actually fit right. in in the spectrum of time and influence, mm-hmm. and so we're actually in the middle, mm-hmm. right? We we are the the very first generation and the last generation in some ways, right? So we were the the last generation to understand what analog meant. Right, we we were born analog, grew up digital, right. so we fit in this really interesting space. to where we know what a cassette tape is and a VCR is, but we also understand streaming content, Netflix and DVD and, and, mm-hmm. and digital streaming. Right, we understand both of these worlds right. and mm-hmm. how those two things mm-hmm. eventually came together. Mm-hmm. And so the the bad rap is we n- none of us have ever been here before. Right, right, <laughs> and what what wisdom is supposed to do the, the purpose of wisdom is to be transferred that's what wealth is all about right mm-hmm. it's about having something to transfer and one of the things we don't uh, we don't necessarily give enough credit for or give enough value to is information right is the things that we learn and Millennials have just done a great job, in my opinion, my humble opinion, Mm -hmm. of taking the lessons that we've learned, whether intentionally from our from our elders or unintentionally, and applied it to what the lives that we want to live and the things that we want to create. To me, that is the the greatest wealth generation or wealth uh, practice that we have actually been able to transfer from generation to generation. And I think that's a great place to start to continue to build in other areas.
0: Well, you know, it's really interesting when you was talking about, you know, you was born in the analog and, you know, I grew up in the A-track, you know. <laughs> A-track and the, uh, the, the rotary dial telephone and then push, then touch tone. You know, I was like, oh, Lord, we can, t- we can press numbers now, baby. Come on now. And But the last yeah. 12 years when you've seen the uh, the iPhone come out, You know, we've seen technology just—you know—I think that's that's warp speed. I guess you could use the terminology because of the fact that you know you can the CD came out, then it's basically outdated because of streaming. OK, so right. right now, you know, the streaming services have told you, why do you need the CD player? Why do you need to buy CDs? And so it has changed the music game because you have more and more more independent artists. They use their social media to drop their own sales and things like that. And so that technology, man, you know, I'm looking at Collab Capital. Talk about mm-hmm. in this new era, you know, because trying to do what you're trying to do when I was growing up may not have been possible, but you can do it now. Talk about the whole basis and the reason that 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 company was founded
6: yeah uh, i love telling our story uh collab capital uh was birthed out of uh three good friends who started their companies around the same time mm-hmm. uh, i started my tech startup uh in 2012 Burke solomon she started hers in 2012 and, and barry gibbons our third partner uh who really is the brainchild of bringing us together right uh, he started his business around the same time so about six months we were all starting our, our business in a very young uh, tech entrepreneurial city. Uh, right. Atlanta 12, uh, 12 years ago, or excuse me, eight years ago was mm-hmm. uh, just a, what we call like a fledgling tech hub. Mm-hmm. Like We were just starting to form mm-hmm. and uh, we realized that as we were building our businesses, uh, it would have been great to have a greater community and connectivity to those that could write checks, right? So investors, um, those that could be our customers. Um, for our, our ventures uh, and really the right talent. And so we realized that as we were growing our businesses that when we exited those businesses and we were to whatever height or uh, level of success, we wanted to make sure that the next group of tech, you know innovators, tech entrepreneurs, brand builders, they actually had some shoulders to stand on. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to start where we started. Um, they were able to start where we left off. And right. so we built Collab Capital to be uh, a bridge for as far as you know, knowledge, social capital and financial capital to help um, a lot of early stage ventures and innovators um, avoid some of the traps um, and some of the things that they are likely going to run into, but then also uh, to catalyze more of the communities to get behind some of the brands and the companies that they're building. So. That was kind of the, the, the quick abridged version, but that's that's at the epicenter of why we do what we
0: do. OK, let me just read this one read. The, the team announced the launch of creating the largest fund for black founders in June, June of this year. Collab is an entity founded to support black owned businesses in a way that would create and sustain wealth within the black community. I ask you this. And this is an honest question. What is the black community? Is it a neighborhood or is it people? Is it a movement? What is the black community?
6: That's a great question. Uh, I wish I had like a a more eloquent answer. Um, I will say that, you know, when I I think about black, I think about the diaspora and Mm -hmm. particularly uh, the portion that's here on this continent. Right. That's in America. Uh, Many of us are descendants of um, slaves in one way or another um, or um, another form of immigration. Right. Uh, So. Uh, not another form of immigration or immigration this mm-hmm. slavery is not a form of immigration right. to be clear. Not even um, into service. <laughs> right, right. Um so uh when I think about black, I think about um, the the mindset and I think about the community. I think about a group of people uh that uh, was weren't given much and yet we still have to find a way and make a way. Uh and um that is at the epicenter. Uh, and then from there it obviously fragments and and becomes a little bit more diverse depending on, you know, where you were able to do that. So right. the the southern um, black individual is going to be have a different mindset than the northern black individual. But we're still a part of a, a greater community of folks who are who are connected uh, by blood, right. honestly, um, in a in a very unique way. And we're we're challenged and charged to. Um, continue to find a way to move forward despite that history.
0: You know, the reason I ask that from a financial percent, f- f- standpoint, 80% of the banks that have closed in the country have closed in black neighborhoods. That's a black yeah. neighborhood. That's why I talk about community. Now we're going to go back to the black neighborhood. We're where if that's what we're talking about, how does one invest in a black neighborhood uh, to uplift? You know, we always hear these terminology, creating jobs in the black community. That's what I always what, what, Because there's a difference between a community, which can be fluid, and a neighborhood, mm-hmm. which is an actual physical location. Absolutely. Now, I'm talking about the neighborhood. they trying to change the game, trying to create um, taxable properties, whether it's a... Uh, uh putting properties in there can be taxed, which in turn will give you better educational systems, better city service systems and things like that. Generally what happens is white people do that. They come back in the black neighborhood, they upgrade it and they say, Hey black people, you gotta roll. Or the taxes get too high that they're forced to roll. So when 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 you Collab came on board, what do you what is the ultimate goal? Because you said, like I said, by the year twenty fifty three, the median net worked for Black households was zero. How do you get to that number in twenty fifty three so it won't be zero?
6: Yeah, well, we recognize that. That's a great question. We we recognize that we are we are um, one pillar of a of a multi tenant mm-hmm. institution that we need to build.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, it's it's not just about financial capital to innovators. We recognize that there needs to be Uh, grassroots efforts. There needs to be neighborhood initiatives. We need to uh, continue to fight for political representation so that laws can favor um, favor black businesses and black communities. Right. Um, For for us, uh, when we think about the local neighborhood, we think about um, Main Street. Right. We talk about Main Street and Wall Street all the time, Um, especially during COVID. That's been a, a topic of conversation quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we, we focus on with Main Street is the digitization, right? Like how how are these businesses going to continue to compete in a world with Amazons and Ubers and Lyft's and all these other technologies uh seemingly disrupting their flow and operations? How do they how do we make sure that those businesses are digital? And what are the new businesses that are gonna come out of this this digital world? Mm-hmm. And so when we think about Main Street, I think I reimagine Main Street being filled with innovators that mm-hmm. are building products and brands they are still able to employ. All right. Mm-hmm. They still, um, um, influence property values. And hopefully there these are neighborhoods and communities that are owned by black people. And right. I think that's the, that's the big, big piece is our part, you know, our small part along with what black banks can do along with, um, other high net worth individuals, real estate people, uh, it's all in concert. It's, it's all a part of it, but if we do it well, Um, We'll be able to put some cornerstones with some black innovators building great businesses that can employ people from the neighborhoods, uh, recent college grads, um, et cetera, um, and and really start to build neighborhoods um, from the from the people up again.
0: The neighborhood, you know, really interesting. You know, I I come from uh, originally born in Houston, Texas. Fifth Ward was my neighborhood, you know, and (laughs) now they put a giant freeway through there. That was always the sign. Okay, let's be real. The white people are coming. Once they once they put. Interstate through your neighborhood. That means they have ramps they can get off. They didn't build that because it was for us, because that neighborhood was there before they built the interstate. That means they're creating right. traffic flow. That means they eventually uh the people who are playing these homes, they may be fifty thousand, a hundred thousand. That property value might go up to fifty, hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand, which means that those Communities that weren't prepared for that elevation in taxes will be disenfranchised again. And so when I when I look at uh, what you're trying to do your partners, what is the ultimate goal to protect? The black community or the black neighborhood let me just say not i say black community what is the ultimate goal to protect the black neighborhood because we say a lot of great things justin you know we say uh trying to create our uh, jobs you know we're trying to create a uh, uh, infrastructure where you don't have to go out of your neighborhood to generate revenue that's good in theory because but uh, black neighborhoods aren't built like that they are built for Buildings that have multiple layers of stories, you know, they usually mm-hmm. maybe two stories at the most. And so how do we protect the black neighborhood? Uh, how should I say I'm putting it on you? How does Collab Capital, capital protect the black
6: neighborhood? Great question. Oh, man, you hit, me the, you hit me with the heavy ones, but I ain't mad. I ain't mad. I love it.
0: Well, um, you know, I'm going to just tell you something. I can only hit you because I know who you are. And I I true respect what you're trying to do, but it's because when you and I saw at the front of this whole, you know, whether it's Greenwood and Killer Mike and whether it's, you know, I see what Cash App is doing. Technology is telling you now we're in a mobile world. We don't you don't need the bank in the neighborhood anymore. But you need to bank with technology. And that's what you guys are doing right now. That's why I'm hitting you with these questions, because I'm just letting people know that there's a different communications out there that we need to understand. There's a black community and there's a black neighborhood. Now, the black community is going to get right first. Now, that black neighborhood is going to continue to struggle until we get the technology accepted in the black neighborhood.
6: That's right. And that, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, when it comes to protecting the black neighborhood, it all starts with knowledge. Right? Mm-hmm. It starts with information and we have to be um, open minded. I think one of the things that we, uh, we we've done over the over the years as a people is sometimes we are apprehensive to accept technology. You know, we we don't we don't trust it for very various, various reasons, real right. reasons. Um, but I think that there's an opportunity as, as long as we have equity and parity within ownership of technology, the more technology that we are building and we own. Uh, then we can start to build those lines of trust and threads. We don't have to rely on the Facebooks of the world. We don't have to rely on the Instagrams or the Twitters mm-hmm. of the world to determine, you know, our financial outcomes and, and the voices and the things that we want to see represented. If we own those technologies, um, we're invested in those technologies. Then we can influence um, how those things are, um, grow, how they're built, and how they grow and are prevalent and present in our communities. So. Uh, knowledge transfer is the very first thing. Is we have to we have to be open to it. We have to be open to exploring and learning. And then we have to get into a position, a place where we actually own some of it.
0: Cool. Now, the question, I got to, got to do this interview right. They're going to say, how do we get in touch with you? You know, when you say something like providing Black founders with both social and economic capital, they need to scale. How does one gain access? Or is it something that one fills out an application, one can go online? What exactly is Collab Capital?
6: Yeah, so we we are a a highly visible and highly accessible investment fund. Um, we, we do focus on Black innovators, so we are looking for technologies uh, in the future of work. Um, so think think about uh, how people will work in the future, uh, future of care, so how people will care for themselves and how we will care for mm-hmm. each other, um, and the future of education, right, how mm-hmm. we will learn. Mm-hmm. And so those are the, our primary areas, but we're happy to talk to founders across Um, various verticals and industries, particularly ones that we may not be aware of. So we're always curious. (laughs) Um, How people get in touch with us is, um, like I said, we're pretty easy to find. Um, This collab.capital is our website where you Mm -hmm. can learn more about our mission, um, our team and what we're building. Uh, And if if you're interested, if you have a company, uh, there's a few different forms and ways, Mm -hmm. uh, links on that website, you can can reach out to us and let us know uh, what you're thinking. we also have social media handles. So we're on Instagram at collab.ca- uh, collab.capital on Instagram mm-hmm. and um, on Twitter as well. So if you just search for collab, it's a, you'll see three rings. The three rings is our, <laughs> our, um, our logo. And so we're easy to find. And uh, we're always happy to talk to innovators and those that are you know interested in helping black innovators succeed
0: well I you know I, you know like i say it was great I wanted to get you on because I didn't saw you in a long time but I want to bring your other two partners back on you know in the first quarter so we can just talk about because that's really key you know they've just signed off on and gotten the uh you know the new uh, pandemic financial package rolling and so yep. a lot of people won't be hopefully won't be thrown out of their homes and will not be due all these, quote, our benefits they gave, them you know, delaying the rental, pa- rental payments, delaying your financial taxes from your payroll checks, all that is coming due. And so in the first of the year, that first quarter, we're going to need you. Not so much lending, but just giving advice, because it goes back to what I'm saying is that I'm just letting everybody know there's a black community and there's a black neighborhood. And we yep. need to understand that conversation when we're talking about how do we change the way we walk. The black community can be changed. It's the black neighborhood that's still struggling. The black community is actually coming out of the black neighborhood and also understands the value of social media, understand the value of change, understanding how to pivot. You go to a black neighborhood, it's the same black neighborhood. Violence is there, you know, limited job opportunities there. There's a, an inability to understand that, that there, there are goals outside of that black neighborhood. And so that's where I really uh, uh, applaud you. Of what you're trying to do, and that's why I want to bring the three of you back on the show in the first quarter, so you know we can really uh, we, we're gonna we gotta get people blacks vaccinated. We know black people have a concern about getting vaccinated you know I, I have a concern i'm just gonna gonna throw it off on black people okay richard mcdonald's concerned okay when i see a lady <laughs> faint on tv okay <laughs> you know
2: right okay
0: w- will that be me fainting or will i faint and not get back up okay i have the right to say that when you have not given a period a test period to say this is uh, uh and usually to, to turn something around now, i knew you had to turn it around quickly and that's why i'm glad we have options here you know a Pfizer came out uh Test. Uh, and now we've got uh, Moderna Moderma coming out now with a, with this drug, and the third one's coming out, AstraZeneca's coming out. So when I come back, we're going to have a different world that we're talking into. We, have a, we mm-hmm. should have a run of vaccinations. People will will hopefully be still in the level of confidence because they would have gotten that $300 a week check that we gotten the right. They would have gotten that $600 a week, $600 uh, uh, stimulus check. Which was cut down from twelve hundred to six hundred dollars. The six hundred dollar week check was cut down to three hundred dollars. So you're getting half of what you got when they shut us down. But I think that's all right because guess what? We're not shutting down. We're moving forward. And I, th- and I think that's what you're doing right now. My whole thing in talking to you, Justin, was bringing you on the show just to talk about your brand. See that? See, I always like your style. You got that smooth little, you know, little I want to say that Marvin Gaye. You're the Marvin Gaye of uh, financials. Okay. Right. <laughs>
6: I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> well, you know, you, you got that that tone I always love about you. You got that right tone, and uh, and it's, it's a it's a it's a bedside tone. You know, if I if I if you were a doctor and you came in, you 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 you, you treat me right because you let me know the facts, but you, you have a, a settling voice to let me know that you can still be a participant. And that's really what this is all about. My conversation with you is letting people know that if you don't get the facts, you don't get the information. You don't talk to the right people, then you're going to continue to
6: struggle. Isn't that the bottom line, Justin? That's it. Uh, that that's that's. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Well, and I appreciate the compliment. I, I've never been told I have good bedside manner, um, <laughs> but I, I appreciate that. Uh, and yeah, I, I am happy to continue to to teach. Um, I come from a long line of teachers. Uh, my mother's side of the family is is a, is a, a large family of teachers, and so. I feel it's my responsibility, you know, as, as I continue to learn to share that knowledge. And, yeah, I'm happy to continue to uh, to do that for our for our communities and for our people.
0: Cool. Well, my man, you know, I've already told you, first quarter, bringing all three of you guys on. We're going to sit down, have a round table, talk about the future of black America, black neighborhoods and also where capital stands at that point moving forward in 2021. But again, thank
6: you for coming on Money Making Conversations. Thank you for having me, Rashawn. It's good to see you. And uh, yeah, I'll be by some real soon. Absolutely, my friend. You got to. got to. If you want to hear more to.
0: Money Making conversation interviews, please go to moneymakingconversations.com. I'm Rashawn McDonald. I'm your host.